I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24, through the end of the chapter. And hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I have avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put out his hand to the mouth, to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies than that, that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ailon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of the God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into my, the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. Whereas the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the, his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Melchi Shua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger was Michal. 
And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So ends the reading of God's word. May he indeed bless it. Let's pray together. Father, would you please speak to us this morning through your word? Would the words of my mouth be clear and true? Would the meditation of our hearts be receptive to your word? Lord, would you grant us wisdom? Would you make us wise unto salvation even through this text this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Proverbs says, When the righteous increase... The people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And so is the story that we see through the life of Saul throughout Scripture. It seems like chapter after chapter, Saul takes one action after another, makes one decision after another that leads him further away from the Lord and brings harm to his people. Saul was a foolish king. You might remember the very last words that The prophet Samuel said to Saul, back in chapter 13, he said to Saul, you have done foolishly, for you did not obey the commandment of the Lord in which he commanded you, for if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but as it is, your kingdom shall not continue. And those words of rejection stuck to the bottom of his gut. They were bouncing around in his head, uh, words of an indictment against him that no doubt, no matter how hard he tried, he could not get out of his head. And so when we come to this portion of Scripture here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, I think what we see is Saul is attempting to grab hold of, he's trying to use his wisdom, his might, his religious observance his authority to cling on to his kingship, his kingly authority. And yet he's foolish. And he digs himself into a deeper hole. Saul's an important character for us to examine, beloved, because Scripture paints Saul as a foolish person, a foolish leader within the people of God. He's He's important for us because he is a member of the the people of God. He's he's this leader of the people of God, and yet he's clearly not a man of God. And he's he's very religious in the way he carries out things. He practices the outward religious actions, and yet he has no true relationship with, with the Lord. And so he's foolish. And it's a reminder for us that true wisdom and true godliness don't come from being a member of the covenant community, a member of the people of God. Being a member of the body of Christ is definitely an important thing for us. It's necessary for us, but godliness and wisdom do not come as a result of it. Nor does it come from even the outward action of the religious things that God gives to us. 
nor does it come through zeal. If we, one thing that characterizes this particular chapter or this part of the, the chapter is Saul seems to have uh, upped the ante of his zeal. He amplifies it. He supersizes his zeal. He tries to do things to turn it, turn it to 11, but it still doesn't give him wisdom. In fact, it, if anything else, it amplifies his, his folly, his foolishness. So I think what we, we need to see is that true wisdom comes only in the Lord. It comes from the Lord, and it comes in the Lord, and it's not from anything of ourselves. So Saul, uh, we see the folly of his leadership in three key foolish acts of leadership. And the very first that kind of predicates everything else is this foolish vow that he puts upon the people. Or this foolish oath it says that Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now in one sense, uh, so he, he places this oath, he puts people into a, a fast in the midst of battle. Paul is a holy fast. He puts them under an oath. And there are certainly religious undertones to a fast. We fast so that we would humble ourselves before the Lord, that we would show our dependence to the Lord so that we might be able to seek his favor and draw near to the Lord in humility. But that's not Saul's intent here. His most commentators suggest that it's more practical reasons. The Israelites had begun to defeat the Philistines, and the Philistines were on the run, and Saul didn't want his people to take their sweet time in pursuing the enemy. He wanted them to press on hard, to capture them, to overtake them. He didn't want them to stop for a fellowship potluck along the way. And so he imposes this, this fast. He's got his reasons. He wants them to press on. He said, let's defeat them and then we'll eat. It doesn't take a whole lot of insight for us to see the, the foolishness of this oath. Uh, 17th century pastor Matthew Henry identified three very obvious foolish aspects of this oath. It was practically counterproductive. It was uh, the rule was far too strict and the punishment was far too severe. Uh, it was practically counterproductive. It was practically unwise. He, he, if he told the people, don't eat, well, you know, they may gain some time on their pursuit of the Philistines, but they would lose strength. You know, in my time in the military, I was never deployed into battle, but I did go on several extended training exercises, and command, the commanders, the leaders of the military were always very focused on making sure that we had proper nutrition, proper energy for the task at hand. They would uh, issue to us uh, every day we were in the field, either two or three MREs, the meals ready to eat, each of which has 1,200 calories in it. And they would give us those and say, you need to eat every, you know, when you can, eat as much as you can. You need the energy for that. But even that wasn't enough. We knew if we were going to go into the field, we needed to load up our cargo pockets with granola bars or beef jerky or any other snacks that might fit in there because if all you're doing is just walking through the woods and you've got all your gear, it's tiring, it's exhausting, you burn calories, you need energy. But these boys, these Israelite men, they weren't allowed to have anything. 
they weren't allowed to have even a taste of honey. And they began to wilt. And you can see the, the, the problem as we evidence it in Jonathan because Jonathan, he, he doesn't hear about the oath. And he sees this honey. And he says, well, I'm going to take a little bit of this honey. And he just has just a little taste. And he says, my eyes brightened. This sugar rush kicks in. He's got a little bit more get up and go. And he says, this was a foolish oath. My, my father has troubled us because now the defeat will not be great. So it was practically counterproductive, but it was also overly strict. It would have been one thing if Saul had said, there was no feasting. We need to pursue the enemy. That's another thing to say, we will be fasting. Even, and especially when there was really no reason for it. There, when they were surrounded by honey. There was so much honey that it was dropping to the ground. As the men passed by, they had to avoid it. You know, all they had to do was reach out and touch. Grab just a little bite, and that would have sustained them a little bit more. But he said, no, not even a taste. And maybe worst of all, it was, the punishment was so severe. He laid upon them an oath of a curse. Cursed be the man who eats food. Anathema! If you eat food. You have to ask, was this so terrible that he would put a curse upon the people? That, that was his rule so unbreakable that it warranted the death penalty? But beloved, as a point of application, I do want to point out one thing. Let's take a look at the, the Israelite soldiers in this situation. Saul's, Saul's oath was indeed foolish. And they, these people of, of the military were certainly suffering. But how did the soldiers respond? How would you respond if you were one of those soldiers? Let me put it that way. If you were under the, the kingship of Saul and he laid this oath, I expect that most of us here would look at his oath and say, that is a foolish oath. That is unwise, it's unjust, and it's unhealthy for me. I have authority over my own body. I have the right to decide what I will eat and what I will not. Fooey on this oath. I'm going to do what I need to do. Well, beloved, that's not the picture that we have here in Scripture. God's Word is clear that we are to submit to the authorities that are placed over us whether or not we agree with it or whether or not they are foolish or unjust authorities. So Jonathan is somebody who actually breaks this command of, John, of Saul, but he does it unwittingly. He doesn't know what he's doing. And even still, we'll have to pay attention a little bit later to see how the Lord handles Jonathan's breaking of this vow. So this foolish oath was one part. He, he troubled Israel through that. But secondly, uh, there is this 
foolish response to the people because not only had they begun to wilt, but they began to lose self-control. When they finally did defeat the Philistines, then they, it says that they, they pounced on the spoil. They began, they were like ravenous wolves and they didn't take the, the time or the, in, they didn't have the time or the inclination to do what they needed to do, to drain the blood before they cooked up the meat and eat it. And the Lord had strictly for, forbidden them from eating meat with the blood in it. So they were sinning against the Lord. Now, as we've said in weeks past, we need to say it again, Saul did not cause them to sin. Saul did not cause the people of, of God to sin. The sin was their own. He created the, the, the situation, the circumstance for their sin, but the sin was their own. How do we know? Well, Saul, what did Saul do? He created a circumstance where they were hungry. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was hungry. He fasted in the wilderness, and yet he never sinned. And not only that, the, the Almighty God caused the people of God to be hungry in the wilderness, the wilderness of Sinai. He did it to test to see what was in their heart. And Saul's oath, the circumstances that he put them under, they were truly foolish, they were wrong, and yet the sin was not simply from their hunger, but was in their heart. And regardless, they begin to eat the, the meat with the blood. They come and they tell Saul, and Saul's response was indicative of his foolish heart. Because wisdom would have driven Saul to look at this situation, look at this, the people just acting so ferociously with the meat, and to take a step back and say, you know what, maybe... Maybe I could have been wiser in how I cared for my people. Maybe there is something that I have done to help provoke them to this particular sin. Or he might have looked at their impatience and their presumption, and he, in humility, could have looked back and thought back to when he was impatient in waiting for Samuel, when he was presumptuous and offered the sacrifice. Wisdom would have caused him to do that, to, to see this situation connected to his own and to have mercy, to have grace. And yet, he does none of those things. He seems to have indignation and condemnation because he says to them, you have done treacherously. You have done treacherously. Roll a stone over to me. And so they do. And that he builds an altar. That's the first altar of the Lord. And, and once they eat, Saul says, okay, it's time to press on. Let's, let's press on. Let's finally defeat the, the enemy the way that we intended to do. And you sense that there's a, a loss of respect for Saul. He says, um, let's say, yeah, let's do what seems good to you. It's a far cry from what the armor bearer had told Jonathan at the beginning of the chapter where he says, do it all is in your heart for I am with you heart and soul. Says, Fine, you're the boss. Tell us, tell us what you want to do. And there's, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a difference too between how Saul is pursuing the enemy versus how Jonathan's, Jonathan had pursued the enemy. Jonathan was humble. 
He said, it, let's go. It may, it may be that the Lord will work for us and grant us victory. It's perhaps. God was the one who must give us the victory. He may do it. And Saul is it's much more presumptuous. He says, we will go. We will fight all night. We will not leave a person. We will spoil. We will annihilate. We will be victorious. And so they say, okay, well, let's go. But then the priest intervenes. And the priest says, well, hold on. Let's draw near to God here. <laughs> Essentially says, what? Why, don't we, why don't we ask the Lord whether we should actually go? Saul says, oh, yeah, good, good idea. Should have thought about that. Let's, uh, let's draw near to the Lord. Um, and so he, they draw near to the Lord, and Saul says, shall, we go, shall I go down and attack the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? And the Lord is silent. The Lord won't answer. I think we should pause for just a second, beloved, to realize this important doctrine is that prayer is one of the most uh, treasured gifts that we have as the people of God. But we need to understand that the Almighty God is under no obligation to listen to us when we pray. He has no obligation to hear us when we pray. And he tells us throughout Scripture that there are times when he will not listen to us. Proverbs 15 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs 28, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Psalm 66, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there are many such passages. And even in the New Testament, beloved, Apostle Peter said this, Husbands, this is important for us. Peter said, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And later Peter says in chapter 4, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Beloved, it is a truth of God's word that our prayers can be hindered. And so we need to approach the throne of grace with reverence and the obedience of faith. And in this case, the Lord would not respond to Saul. And in this case, it was due to Jonathan breaking this vow. Which really must cause us to stop and understand the importance that God places on vows. For us, talk is cheap, but not to the Lord. The Lord expects his people to hold firm, to be faithful to the words that we say, particularly when it comes to vows. And most of us here have taken vows of some sort. Most of us here have taken membership vows before God and one another, that we will be faithful to certain things. Some of us here have taken marriage vows before God and witnesses that we will be faithful till death. Even some of us here have taken ordination vows as officers in the church. We must uphold those things. As we heard in our law passage, it is better for us to not vow than to vow and not keep it, that God expects us 
Beloved, we are promising to God that we will do certain things when we take vows. And so we must do it. In fact, Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is this wonderful psalm where the psalmist asks, who may dwell in your presence? Who may be on your holy hill? And one of the characteristics of that person is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Another person said, and beloved, we know that we all break our word. Our word is far less reliable than we would like it to be. And that's why we, we cling to the hope of Christ and Christ alone, that his faithfulness is what saves us, not our ability to be faithful to our vows or our oaths. It's because God, God sent his son, Jesus, to be faithful to every one of his words, that Jesus was faithful to keep God's promises, and every one of Jesus' promises is true, and yes, and amen. But beloved, that's no excuse for faithlessness. That's no excuse for flippancy with our vows. We haven't been set free by Jesus Christ to be flippant with our words, but so that we can be faithful to our vows, even when it hurts. That's the godly character that our father expects from his children. Well, in this case, Saul is seeking to be instructed by the Lord. The Lord won't speak to him. And so Saul gathers the people together and he says, tell me what's going on. Tell me what what is this sin that the Lord won't hear me? Can you tell me what, what this is? He says, even if it's Jonathan, my son. And it's ironic that he mentions Jonathan. I wonder if he suspected something or was it his jealousy that the Lord had worked through Jonathan and seemed to be rejecting Saul? Was he hoping that it was Jonathan, that he could inflict some kind of punishment upon his son? So he asked the question, and the people refused to say a word. God was silent, and now the people were silent. So Saul says, fine, we'll cast lots. We'll find out who's the culprit here. And the lot falls to Jonathan. And Saul says to him, just tell me what you have done. See how similar that is to what Samuel had said to Saul just a chapter before? He, when Samuel said, what have you done? Now Saul says to his son, tell me what you have done. But unlike Saul, who had made all sorts of excuses, blamed everyone that he could, you see what Jonathan says? He takes ownership for what he has done. He confesses it. He admits it. He hadn't really... He'd done nothing that was truly sinful. He committed no real crime other than breaking this foolish oath of his father's. And yet he says, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. A little bit of honey, just a taste. But here I am. I will die. And beloved, here's the third thing, the third foolish act that we see in Saul is the blindness of his folly. He is unmerciful, he is ungracious, and he is unreasonable that he is willing to double down on this oath, so much so that he is willing to put his son to death with an oath on himself. 
He says, God do so to me and more also. It, you shall surely die, Jonathan. The folly of this man is beyond, is beyond measure for this foolish oath he's going to put his son to death. Beloved, we are in our folly. We are born into folly. We think we are wise. We are, we are foolish by nature, but we are blind to that, that foolishness that is within us, and we are locked in to our way of doing things and our way of thinking about things. To ourselves, we seem so clear-minded, and to ourselves, we seem so reasonable and so right, and yet we can see the folly of each other a lot more clearly. And that ought to cause us to be really concerned that if we are so easily blinded by our folly, that we can be so caught in foolishness that's not too substantially different from Saul's here. How, how, can, we, how can we gain wisdom? How can we break out of that blindness? Well, I think God's word gives us some some breadcrumbs that, that would lead us back to the truth, a, a test of, of godliness, godly wisdom, uh, that we can measure our own thinking and our own actions to see whether the wisdom that we, th we think is so right is truly godly wisdom. Um, James chapter 3 talks about the wisdom of this world and the wisdom from above. The, the Zion Youth Group actually examined this passage just this very week. And the wisdom from above is, what James says is, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We need to meditate on that passage and to consider our own thinking, our own living, our own speaking, does it measure up to that test of wisdom? Let's, let's just consider just a few of those. Is your way of doing things, is your wisdom, is it peaceable? Does it create peace? Does it unite? Does it bring people together? Or does it create conflict? Does it create division does it separate brothers and sisters from one another? Secondly, is it gentle? Saul was willing to starve his troops and kill his son. Are you gentle in your wisdom? Or are you harsh or violent with your words or your thoughts or your actions? Wisdom from above is gentle. It's full, and the wisdom from God is full of good fruits. Evaluate what are the true fruits of your wisdom and way of doing things. Does it bring about the fruits of godliness that God looks for? Or does it bring about rottenness, rotten fruit? What kind of fruit? And last, open to reason is what James says. And this one's important because in God's grace, God protects us from being duped by each other's foolishness. We can see it in other people, at least most of the time. And God puts us in community with one another 
so that we can speak wisdom into each other's lives to correct and to restore. And Saul was ready to put his son to death, and the Israelites saw the folly of this, and they spoke up. They delivered Jonathan. They said, they said, shall Jonathan die who has worked such this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair from his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Beloved, he puts us in community with one another for our protection and for restoration and for our, our care. Are you willing to listen? Has God... Is God speaking to you through your brothers and sisters to correct you? Is he speaking into your folly? And in your blindness, you're, you're not seeing it. You're, you're rebelling against it. And you're refusing to, to be reasonable. Are you aligning yourself only with those people who agree with your point of view? Or are you willing to be reasonable? people trying to reason with you beloved this is the wisdom from above this is the wisdom to which we're called and is not a wisdom that is natural it's not a wisdom that was there in Saul and it's not a wisdom that we find in this world it is from the Lord and that is where we must seek it but praise God he sent his son Jesus Christ to come to be the wisdom of God for us to be a wise king to be endowed with this wisdom beyond that measure. And he, the Lord Jesus, was such a king that was not like Saul. He, wasn't, he was not like Saul in that our king does not create burdens or weary us with his law and his rules and his oath, but he came to carry our burdens. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John wrote that his commands are not burdensome. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. This is, this is the way of our king. He, unlike Saul, Jesus Christ did not come to condemn us with indignation, but while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He became humble and gracious and in love, not to condemn, but to save. He came to receive the condemnation, condemnation that we deserve. Our sins were laid on him, and he was condemned on the cross so that we might be forgiven. But very much like Jonathan, the Lord Jesus Christ was chosen. Chosen as the one who would save God's people, but also chosen to die for doing nothing wrong. Isn't that what the, the thief on the cross said to the other thief? He said, you and I, we, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And yet, no one stood up for Jesus. No one said, but shall Jesus die who is the Savior of the world? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has not only worked with God, he is the very Son of God. No, no one said that. The people said, crucify him. 
May God do so and more also if he does not die this day. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, here I am, I will die. And beloved, he did that out of obedience. He did that to fulfill God's oath to his people, to redeem a people for himself. He did that out of his oath to the Father, to be the savior of God's people. He came to work salvation. He did it out of great love for us, beloved, and he came to work salvation for us. That's what he did. He did that for the very people who sent him to the cross, even you and me. And beloved, that is the king that we need. That is the king that we must submit to. That is true wisdom right there. But it's not just his wisdom that he possesses in and of himself, but it's a wisdom that he gives to us because that is why he gave us his spirit, that we might grow in this wisdom from above. His, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of wisdom and that's where our true wisdom is. He makes us wise unto salvation, and he makes us wise in him as he conforms us to Christ. Even then, we grow in wisdom. So you might ask, how do we grow in that wisdom? How does the Spirit do it? Scripture says that the Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. It's through drawing near to the Father in relationship praying to him that he teaches us wisdom is through obedience to his commands which are sweet to the taste. It is through putting to death the sins which entangle us. It is walking in him and being preserved in him. That is how the Spirit works in us and draws us and makes us wise. And beloved, that's why Jesus came, to make us wise, to give wisdom to fools like you and me. That's why the Spirit came, to fill us with this wisdom and to teach us wisdom. Beloved, grow wise in Jesus Christ. This is true wisdom. May we grow in this wisdom. May we know this wisdom. May we encourage one another into the wisdom of Christ. And may we grow in the grace and the knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him there is no other salvation or no other wisdom. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, which is true, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you for the hope that is only ours in Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom and sanctification and righteousness. Help us to walk in him. Help us to know what this means and help us to live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.